0: hey everybody welcome to profoundly pointless my name is nick vinzant coming up in this episode insects and evolution we're just
2: trying to understand how the natural world around us came to be so How did all the species form? Why are they distributed where they are on the planet? Many of their behaviors are so similar to behaviors that we ourselves exhibit that it was easy to connect with them, right? They wage battles. They care for their young. They gather food. They build architecture. So – long ago ancestor, some primordial sludge in the you know soup of the sea that's where all of life on this planet came from they're big conspicuous ants they actually will actively watch you in the forest so it's always a little freaky to like stumble into one of their nests
0: i want to thank you guys so much for joining us if you get a chance like Download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So do you ever just kind of look around and wonder why? Why do these animals live in these places? Why does this insect look the way that it does? Why do we look the way that we look? Our first guest studies exactly that. And she has this fascinating insight and a masterful way of explaining things that I just... During this whole interview, I just found myself going, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's amazing. There's so much that goes into the world around us. And I think that that just kind of peeling back that little bit, even a little layer of that, just reveals so much fascination, I think. And you can kind of walk away with just this, Marvelous wonder at the world around you after listening to her. Oh, and she knows a lot about ants. Like a lot about ants. Stuff that you had no idea could possibly be true. And this makes you go, What? This is evolutionary biologist Dr. Corey Moreau. So when we talk about evolutionary biology, like what what exactly are we talking about?
2: In my mind evolutionary biology. We're just trying to understand how the natural world around us came to be. So how did all the species form? Why are they distributed where they are on the planet? I mean, if you think about it, why isn't everything just equally found across the globe and in equal numbers in all of the different organismal groups? I mean, if you think about just insects, there are more species of insects than there are of mammals. So trying to figure out those sort of patterns and, and understand the processes that led to the diversity of life we see. When, when you kind
0: of look at like evolutionary pressure, is it evolutionary pressure from outside of the organism's group, like other organisms, or is it from within, like they're competing against themselves, so to speak?
2: It's both of those things plus one more thing, which is the environment itself, right? So you can think about as you know, aridification happened in some of our desert regions. We had animals that had to now adapt to an entirely new environment, or they didn't survive. Right, so things either went extinct or they changed to live in these new habitats. But again, we also know that there can be interspecies competition and conflict, which might sort of drive uh, either species to diverge away from one another, if it's things like you know uh, conflict, or they might become well adapted to living together and become a mutualism, and even within species you know sort of conflict and cooperation can lead to, to, to divergence right so now two populations may no longer interact which in the longer term might lead to a speciation event
0: i don't know how to ask you this question necessarily but kind of give me some leeway like how how big of a pressure does there have to be before something becomes an entirely new species
2: yeah that's a great question um Usually what happens is you need some amount of time. So the way I like to think about it is uh, imagine you had a population. It was all just one species, and it was distributed across a wide geographic range. And maybe a mountain rose up in between them or a river changed course and split them into two populations now. But they're still the same species, right? They're just in different locations. But now if they have some sort of a barrier that doesn't allow them to mix anymore – mostly, of course, thinking about their genetics, what will happen is each of them will start to accumulate new mutations, either by random chance or maybe because one of them is on the drier end of the, the distribution, right? And so you start accumulating more mutations that help them be successful in this dry, adapted environment, and maybe the other is in a wetter part of the environment. But either way, you need some amount of time for those populations to become so incredibly different from one another that if they were reintroduced to one another they no longer can even mate anymore they become distinct species and so the amount of time that needs to pass of course varies. Many people think it's probably on the order of a million years. Sometimes it happens really quickly and could happen in you know hundreds of thousands of years. Sometimes it might take millions of years for those populations to, to drift far enough apart that they're now no longer one species.
0: Is there one species that you look at and say that's the most evolved species of all?
2: Well, that's a misnomer because in evolution nothing is more evolved than anything else. Um, and so it's this idea that all of life on planet is equal, it's just who they're most closely related to. And so you can have relics that don't have very many close relatives around anymore, so they'll seem kind of bizarre. So if you think of something like a coelacanth, right, It's there's not a lot of things that are very highly similar to a coelacanth, where other things, like you might think of fruit flies, and they kind of all look alike to you, but there's lots and lots and lots of species, and so... You know, how would you sort of decide which is, 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 you know, more at the pinnacle of evolution? They're just in different trajectories.
0: They kind of each go as far as they need to, right? Is that Does that make sense?
2: Sure. And, of course, you also have to keep in mind lots of things are going extinct through evolutionary time as well.
0: When you look at kind of from the aspect of biodiversity, do we have as much biodiversity as we used to? Is that just going away? Like what's happening to all these species? <sighs>
2: Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I would say, unfortunately, humans have a pretty negative impact on biodiversity, and we know that we're losing species because of, of you know, our involvement on the planet, um, and. Not always in a necessarily intentionally bad way, right? And so we know some organisms just don't do well around human-built environments where others actually thrive, right? So we can think about things like cockroaches, and, and they've done extremely well in the human-made environment where lots of species actually go extinct either locally or globally when you know, their environment is perturbed too much. So do I think our planet's holding all the biodiversity it could? Absolutely not. And unfortunately, that's probably our fault at this moment. But if we were to sort of back up, you know, a few thousand years, um, I would say that we probably were, you know, holding quite a bit more biodiversity.
0: I mean, is there something that we as a human species can do to save this? Or is it just like our mere presence is going to have some kind of effect, right? Like no matter how much we tiptoe, something's bad is going to happen, so to speak.
2: Well, I mean, of course, if we tiptoe, we're going to cause less negative pressures on, on biological diversity, uh, and of course there are things that individuals Can do right you can be quite mindful About how you live on the planet but I Really think to sort of stop the, the Large changes that are happening We'd have to invoke policies at the global Level right we know that climate change is One of the leading factors that's Currently impacting species on the planet But will certainly continue to in the Future where you know a Lot of us have now thought about things like you know Planting native plants in our gardens To attract pollinators right and so I think there's a level of knowledge That each of us individually can gain to make sure that we're promoting and helping support biodiversity. But then there's also things that just because of the sheer number of people we have, we're going to always have industrial farming at this point, right? As much as all of us would love to eat locally and shop locally, it's like impossible to do that entirely for the majority of the planet. So, uh, I mean, I think that each of us should do our small part, but we should also be advocating for policy change at the highest levels.
0: What kind of policy changes do you think that we need the most?
2: I think we need to think about, you know, how do we, how do we get our sources of, of energy? I think we need to think about how do we feed people effectively while still being mindful of the planet and not just being greedy. Um, I, I think that we have to, to be thoughtful about where people live and reside and, you know, and, and recognize that not, you know, not everyone can have, you know, equal sizes of property and, and, and still support, you know, biodiversity on the planet.
0: How was this something that you got into? What attracted you to it?
2: <laughs> to biology, we're thinking about our impacts on the planet. <laughs>
0: Um, well, I feel like one is just an existential, almost like crisis that we all have. So let's go with biology. Sure.
2: So growing up, I loved nature. I thought it was just the coolest thing. Um, I grew up in New Orleans. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know scientists. My parents didn't go to university and or college. And so it wasn't like I had this idea like, okay, step one, you do this. Then step two, you become a scientist. It was more just that I thought nature was cool. And, Back then, um, you know, I'm older than, than probably many of your listeners. We didn't have the Nature Channel and Animal Planet. We just had PBS. And I remember every single nature show that came on on PBS. I was glued to the TV. But I also thought that, you know, that. PBS had all the scientists in the world on it, and that's probably all the scientists that we needed in the world. I didn't realize all the ways that you could use research and science. And so it wasn't until I went away to university that I my eyes were open to just all the cool things that you could do. And and maybe it's because I grew up in an urban environment, I just loved bugs because I could find them anywhere. And so for me, I went away to university and thought, okay, I'm gonna study nature, but I really want to focus on bugs, and I don't know what I'll do with that in the end. But um you know I, I sort of thought maybe I could teach high school or maybe work for a pest control company but you know I didn't know that there were so many ways that you could use insects to study important questions on the planet.
0: What can kind of insects tell us about our lives?
2: Um well I mean of course in lots of different things. In one way, you know, many species are bioindicators for whether we have healthy habitats. And so that's important, of course. Um, we also know that if you think about the impact of of uh, organisms on human commodities, of course, insects are giant pests, but they're also important pollinators, right? So they have lots of beneficial and harmful roles for things that humans care about, I don't do applied research. Most of my research is actually much more fundamental or basic. And what I'm trying to just understand is why are there so many species and why are they found where they are? And, and how do species interactions explain how they may shift into new habitats or onto novel diets? I'm, I'm just trying to understand the world around me.
0: So from an understanding standpoint, let's say one is we basically know absolutely nothing about the world around us, the species around us. 10, we've got this all completely figured out. Where do you think that we are right now?
2: Oh, goodness. Maybe at a 3?
0: That's it?
2: Yeah. I mean, think about the fact that how many species of of invertebrates there are in a rainforest that we know nothing about or all the bacteria that are found globally distributed we know almost nothing about and let's not even talk about the bottom of the oceans there's so much diversity down there that every now and then we get a glimpse of because maybe we send some sort of a a submerged vesicle down there or a fisherman finds something bizarre but I guarantee you there's a hundredfold more diversity out there than any of the things we've even just begun to sort of study I mean I imagine biodiversity in my mind as much like an avalanche we are only seeing what's above water right now that's all that scientists have been able to discover and describe and the majority of it's still hidden underneath the ocean and really like you know there's so much incredible uh, knowledge to gain from studying that diversity
0: so what was it about ants that appealed to you so much
2: oh I well I think for me it was that even as a kid I could, watch them engaging in behaviors so not that I was asking sophisticated questions I might have been just putting out cookie crumbs and noting how many came and how many how long it took them to carry them away but I I loved that I could actually studying them doing something in real time and despite the fact that they often weren't as beautiful as some of the butterflies or beetles I saw, sometimes in one summer I might find one beetle and not see it again till the next year. So I couldn't actually like observe things about it. So I think that's what first captivated me to ants. I also think it was that many of their ba- behaviors are so similar to behaviors that we ourselves exhibit that it was easy to connect with them, right? They wage battles, they care for their young, they gather food, they build architecture. So I think I just was naturally attracted to them because they, they did all these amazing things things.
0: I mean, they are kind of the coolest, right?
2: Yes, definitely.
0: Which one? All right, though. Well, I'll ask you this later, because we have some listener questions that are kind of focused on that a little bit. But I, I was reading just some of the research that you did that the answer, what 140 million years old or something?
2: That's right. Yeah. And so um, we use a set of statistical, you know, tools to help us figure that out. By using both molecular data, DNA data, coupled with the fossil record. So ants have an incredibly rich fossil record. There are tens of thousands of ant fossils Um, and the oldest ant fossil is about a hundred million years old and what's interesting is that belongs to a group that's still around today so really what it appears is that ants sort of appeared on the planet from their closest relatives and were kind of you know doing okay probably not in high density or high species numbers and then as the flowering plant forest sort of expanded across the globe this was a perfect niche for them to live in. So if any of you have ever spent time in tropical forests, you know that ants are everywhere. And so it really provided a niche both in the places they could live, but also in all kinds of new food resources for them. So ants really sort of went through this explosion in species correlated with the expansion of the flowering plant forests across the globe.
0: Do we have any idea how many ants there are on the planet?
2: Individual ants or species?
0: I've I guess both. (laughs) Um,
2: so species wise right now, uh, scientists have given names to about 15,000 species of ants, we know that number is at least double and maybe triple. So there are a lot of species of ants. And I want to sort of contextualize that. There are more species of just ants than all the birds and mammals added together. And so, you know, there's a lot of really interesting behaviors and, and structures to study within them. Now, if we talk about individuals, there's been some like, you know, crazy back of the envelope calculations. And it's in the trillion that we actually believe are probably on the planet now. Um, some people have speculated that between ants and termites, they, they have more biomass than all the humans on the planet right now, meaning that if we put all of the ants and termites on one side of a scale and all the humans on the planet on the other side of the scale, the ants and termites would outweigh the, the humans.
0: Why, but why are there so many, Do we need that many of them? Are they just that good at reproducing? Like why... Why are they so dominant in that regard?
2: Yeah. So they live in social structures, right? So since they're social species, every nest is essentially one individual, right? So you have a queen in there who's laying all the eggs, and then you have all the workers in the nest that are performing all the important roles, whether it's feeding the young or building the nest or gathering the food or waging the battles, right? And so each nest is essentially one super organism with lots of individuals in it. Now, As to whether we need them all, I would argue we absolutely do. They're important ecosystem engineers. And so, you know, I often tell people that they're really important for soil health and likely more important even than earthworms. So, you know, whenever you see an ant going into a hole in the ground, there's essentially an upside-down skyscraper underneath that soil, right? So they are building tunnels. They're aerating the soil. They're letting nutrients flow into the soil. They're bringing nutrients up towards the the, you know, soil surface. They're letting water permeate that. And, and that's just the ants that are living in the soil. And so they also perform lots of important roles for plants, like dispersing seeds and breaking down and, and helping decompose organic matter. So I think we
0: need them all. When you look at kind of the evolution of species necessarily, is it still the remaining, like, did we all come from the same place at the same time and it just branched off and eventually we got all of us?
2: That's right. So all of life on this planet is from a single, you know, long ago ancestor, some primordial sludge in the, you know, soup of the sea, and that's where all of life on this planet came from. Now, of course, it broke off into different branches of the tree, so we can think about fungi, and animals are more closely related than they are to plants, and of course, then there's all kinds of microbial groups um, that, you know, also, you know, have diversified and have lots of species and important roles on the planet. But yeah, all from one evolutionary origin.
0: So I'm going to use the proverbial they in this, but like how, how are they able to determine the difference between like, okay, we all originated, I'm just going to name my hometown. We all originated from Derby, Kansas somehow, as opposed <laughs> to like, oh, no, no, this happened in different places at the same time. And they all came, like, how did they separate out the difference?
2: Yeah, so... Of course, there's all kinds of hints if you look at external anatomy, but really the, and and so people had long been speculating that that was probably the case, but the DNA data is actually what's um, really sealed the case. So we can actually use DNA. So just like if you imagine if we wanted to say, okay, how are, are you and all of your relatives related to each other? So you wouldn't have to tell me, you could just give me a sample of all of your DNA. And I could figure out who your dad and mom was. I could figure out who their dad and mom was. I could figure out who their sibling were right from using that genetic evidence well that's just at the scale of one family now we can sort of do that across the globe and we can ask the question how is life on the planet related to one another and there's of course hints in the fact that the genetic code um, is all highly similar but in addition we can reconstruct that family tree and actually see how life evolved on the planet it's called phylogenetics it's actually really an amazing tool to sort of understand the diversity of life
0: Do human beings have much biodiversity, or are we pretty much all right in the same place? Or is that a big, controversial, loaded question?
2: Oh, I don't think it's a controversial, loaded question. I mean, we're all one species. That's for a fact. Um, Of course, just like lots of other species, we have population genetic level differences, right? It's becoming blurred, the more global and more... um, uh, mobile, we are. We're mixing a lot of that diversity more and more. But of course, we know that you know humans originated from Africa. They migrated out. Some you know individuals sort of landed in Australia, right, and essentially became isolated there for quite a long time. So, if we look at the the DNA of them, we can see the distinct signatures of being from Australia versus being from you know North America, but. We're still all the same species, right? If we put us back together, we can interbreed quite easily. We still share much of our DNA. It's you know some obscene amount, like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of our DNA between any two humans on the planet is identical. I mean, that's pretty remarkable.
0: When 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 they kind of first found that out, when they were were people shocked that it was that high.
2: Not only were people shocked, but then, of course, you know, coming back to that question you'd asked me earlier about, like, you know, which is the most evolutionary advanced um, species, when we first started having the technology to sequence genomes well, um, people had made predictions that because humans had these sophisticated social structures, because we had language, because we had art and music. we knew that we probably need a lot more genes to encode for all of those unique things that make us human. And once we started sequencing lots of genomes and looking at gene content, we were shocked to find out that our gene content isn't much different from almost anything else. And that was something that people hadn't expected. We now know, and even knew then, that one gene doesn't code for one trait. Usually what you have is many genes contributing to particular traits. And that, so any one gene is more like a letter of an alphabet. You might use an E to spell one word this you know, in this sentence, but you're going to use an E again in, in the same next word in the same sentence, and it doesn't give you the same word. And so now we just know that sort of the interplay and, le- and communication between all of our genes is what leads to the complexity, not the
0: number of them. But like, okay, how much of our DNA do we share with an ant? Like, do they have... Has somebody measured that?
2: Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if anybody's measured it. We could measure it. I mean, but to give you perspective, like our next closest relative is a chimpanzee, and we share like 90, 97% of our DNA with our closest relative. So if we were sort of to extrapolate out, um, I would imagine we probably share something like 60% of our DNA with ants. I mean, they're an animal. You have to remember that. So, you know, all things that are animals share a large proportion of their DNA.
0: So I'm dating myself a little bit but in terms of when I was growing up evolution was still kind of this big thing and full disclosure I went to a catholic school and evolution's not real is that still a thing that is around or have people have scientists pretty much dispelled that and
2: I would argue scientists have long dispelled that there are still people who question it um, and you know it's it's always interesting to me that people question evolutionary biology but they don't question astronomy because really we're not trying to solve how did the the you know world come to be and like what's the origin of the universe that's astronomers but nobody Pickett's astronomy conferences, but they still do come to evolution conferences from time to time and try to, to you know say that you know our work isn't real because they can't be related to a monkey, right? And and that that's not how evolution works.
0: Is I mean, is it multiple people or is it like one person coming to the thing?
2: Oh, it's usually like a very small group, and uh, you know, yeah, and it, it, it's it's definitely decreased through time. I think that, you know, it's funny because people who even question evolution, they have no problem trusting medicine. And where do you think most of that medicine comes from or how we understand how epidemiology happens or how we have, you know, pandemics? That's all through of the lens of evolution. We're watching how these things evolve.
0: Are you ready for some of the harder slash listener submitted questions? Bring them on. Most overrated ant? <laughs> <aunt.
2: sighs> Oh, that's an interesting question. Most overrated ant, maybe army ants. And I think it's because people like, you know, they've seen, you know, like the Temple of Doom or Raiders of the Lost Ark, whichever one were supposedly like a a human was consumed by army ants. And so people often ask me, like, could army ants kill me? And the answer is no. So I think that's why they're overrated.
0: If we're in ant high school, what ant is the jock? Who's the nerd? Who's the cool guy? Who's the loner?
2: So first, I'm gonna say, if it was an ant high school, it would be a high It would be an all girls high school because all the ants you've probably ever seen in your life are female. Males are only produced once a year solely for reproduction. So if you've ever seen an ant out waging a battle, or carrying food back to the nest, or building the nest, those are all females. If you saw an ant without wings, it's female. So only once a year are males produced. Uh, They have wings, and so do the new queens, and they go off on a mating flight. The males never contribute to the care of the colony or gathering food. They're only job is reproduction so after they copulate or reproduce they die almost immediately so now you have a new queen she flies off to find a suitable habitat to start her whole new colony of all females um, and then digs down in the dirt and starts laying eggs so if we go back to your high school analogy um that's a tougher one because thinking about the dynamics of an all girls high school of course you'd have the the jock would probably be the the soldier ants, right? The ones that are just brute force. If we had the nerds, it would be the scouts that are out trying to figure out where's the next best food source to come from. Um, I don't remember all the other categories.
0: Well, who would be like the cool ant?
2: Oh, the cool ant. I think all of them.
0: But if there was a cool ant amongst cool ants, like if you had to pick one like this this species of ant or this this ant is the cool one.
2: Oh gosh, I ha- guess I'd have to pick the queen because the colony doesn't exist without her. Um, yeah, that's that good. being said, I think she has the worst job of the entire colony because remember, once she sort of mates, she digs down in the soil and then just lays eggs the rest of her life. She never leaves the nest. She never reproduces again. She never gathers food. She just sits there and lays eggs.
0: Yeah, it kind of sounds awful for the queen and the man, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <Huh? laughs> What what would be the reason, though? Like, what's the biological or evolutionary reason while only having this one man? Why, why would that be advantageous to them?
2: So, this has to do with several things. Um, one has to do with their mating structure. So, when we... Mate or reproduce, right? We have one set of chromosomes that comes from our mothers, our maternal line, and one from our paternal line, our fathers. And we do get some mixing, but more or less you're kind of getting one chromosome for, from each parent. Well, in social, in the Hymenoptera, which are the ants, bees, and wasps, they have a different mating structure. So when a queen lays an egg and sperm is united with it, it becomes diploid, so it has two copies of all of the chromosomes, and it becomes female. If she lays an egg and does not unite sperm with it, it becomes male. So males are haploid. They only have one copy of all their chromosomes. So first, the genetic structure of determining sex is actually quite different. In addition, now you have these females that are diploid right they have two sets of chromosomes and because of that system all of the individuals in the nest end up highly related to one another so they're invested in sort of taking care of both the queen but also all their uh, sisters because of that high relatedness so it's turned into this odd system where males are really only utilized for essentially reproduction
0: Guys, kind of the same with us in some ways. I feel like you really you really don't need men. I mean, you really don't. Is that kind of true throughout species like you only need one man for every how many women?
2: That's I mean, reproductively that's certainly true. I wish we could tell our global leadership that that.
0: Best movie about an ant.
2: Oh, interesting. Wow, I mean, so So, of course, my first thought is all of the movies that are not done well. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, think about things like Bugs Life and Ants, right? It shows this whole male task force and these strong male soldiers, and all of that is totally not true. Those are all females. Um, I'll say that, of course, I like classic movies, so, of course, Them is really exciting to me. There's a few things I really like about it partially because they use scientific names for ants, which is, you know, pretty nerdy, but I appreciate. Um, and they make the entom- the entomologist studying them really an expert in ants, which, of course, I think is cool. But as much as I often uh, complain about Ant-Man, because it's not Ant-Man, it should be Ant-Woman, um, I did appreciate that a lot of the storytelling around the, the skills and tools of these different ants actually was based in some amount of reality of what those species actually can do. So I liked that they did a little studying, and so that you're actually learning a little bit about ant diversity while watching the movie.
0: Species with the farthest evolutionary journey. I guess this would Uh, technically be furthest, because it's not a measurement of actual distance, but anyway.
2: Right. Um... That's an interesting – there's lots of ways to answer that question because, again, as I sort of explained earlier, no species is more evolved than anything else. So we could sort of talk about species that are these anomalies on the tree of life, right, meaning that they didn't leave a lot, behind a lot of species and that we still don't understand much about them. So there's a species a, – a couple of species of ants um, that are early diverging lineages of ants that left not a lot of clues about – what their life was like when they first evolved. So those ones are pretty interesting. Of course, the first ant that jumped in my mind was the bulla ant, which is Paraponera clavata. And this ant is amazing because it's just one species, but it has a distribution essentially from southern Mexico through all of Central America and all of South America. They're big, conspicuous ants. They actually will actively watch you in the forest so it's always a little freaky to like stumble into one of their nests. They have an incredibly painful sting, so most people try to avoid interacting with them. That's why they're called bullet ants. It feels like you were shot by a gun. But what's really interesting is there's only one species in that. Not only it's the just the genus in the entire subfamily, just that one species has survived. So it begs the question, sort of, why did the sort of relatives of it go extinct? Yet this one has been incredibly evolutionarily successful.
0: Is that the Siafu
2: thing? Yes.
0: I still remember some documentary that, like, they carry away children or something.
2: Oh, no, Siafu is the African army (laughs) ant.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) See,
2: they tell you to carry away children.
0: (laughs) Do they, do they carry away, do they carry away children?
2: No, I think there's been like one case, supposedly, it's never been fact-checked, that a farmer had a newborn and put it out in the shade, but in in the field, and then wandered off to do some work in the field, and then the army ants came along and found this plump little juicy child sitting there, and stung it and bit it, but didn't carry it away.
0: Oh, that makes me feel much better. (laughs) (laughs) Biggest thing you learned from E.O. Wilson?
2: Oh, that's a nice question. Um, I think it's to appreciate curiosity, um, and to cultivate it in yourself. I think that we often think of science as this really rigid process where, you know, everything sort of has to conform to some experimental expectations. And what he really promoted was that observing the natural world and getting to know what's happening around you actually informs your questions. And so you can ask better questions when you actually know what things do in nature and, and being curious about organisms or being curious about habitats actually will lead to the most powerful insights. And so I think that's probably what he taught me the most. Let
0: me follow up that great, great question with, would you rather be a wasp or a hornet?
2: Well, a hornet is just a type of a wasp, oh. so well, I guess the question is, well, it doesn't matter.
0: A, man, right when our audience was looking really smart, then they came across <laughs> with this, huh? Way to let us down, people. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is your area of expertise, but I've remember I said our audience is a little quirky? It just says, what's going on with a platypus?
2: Oh, that is a great question. I mean, I totally agree that has to be one of the most bizarre-looking animals. Um, And, I mean, with some really interesting life history. But, I mean, I think to me what sums up the platypus is that the first time one was collected by European um, explorers and and sent back to to, uh, England— they thought it was a gaffe. They thought that literally the, as a joke, the explorer had taken multiple different animals and glued them together and then sent it on as if it was a real species. And what's interesting, if you look at one now, it literally looks like you've glued it really you know, does. unconnected pieces of animals together still, even when they're alive. And I've seen one alive and it does not look real. So I agree. The platypus is crazy.
0: <laughs> I'm looking at one right now. Like it really does like, what the <laughs> Like some (laughs) just hey, watch this guys. I'm gonna (laughs) send this out. See what this thing looks like. Um, what kind of research what do you uh what your research right now? What are you working on?
2: Yeah, so we're doing a few different things. Um what I am most excited about is we're trying to understand how Symbiotic interactions actually helped ants become so successful. So ants have symbiotic relationships with other animals, with plants, with fungi, with bacteria. And what we want to understand is when they engage in those symbiosis, is it always beneficial? Is it always negative? And then what impact does it have? So interestingly, um, some work in my group, we've looked at ant-plant interactions, but we've also looked at ant-microbe interactions. And so the ant-microbe work is revealing some interesting new insights. So lots of animals, as we all know now, if you hear about the microbiome, we have bacteria that live in and on us that are important to our own health, right? Of course, some are not helpful, but many of them we need in order to be healthy. And so we've been studying groups of ants that have actually transitioned from their earliest diets, which were predatory, some have become generalists, but then some have even become entirely dependent on plant-based diets or vegetarians. And so we tried to understand, how do you make that shift? And and in almost all the cases we've been able to study, they actually have to take on these symbiotic gut bacteria that – synthesize the essential amino acids or proteins that they don't get in their own diet in order to survive entirely on a plant-based diet. But what's cool about that is that by transitioning onto this entirely plant-based diet, you have opened up all these new niches that you no longer have competition with other ants for food resources. So now you can diversify or speciate again. So it's this sort of interaction with the environment and with the symbiotic um Micros in this case that have led to some groups of ants being incredibly abundant and incredibly species rich.
0: If you were wanting to impress somebody at a party and you were going to hit them with your single greatest ant fact, what are you going to go with?
2: Well, I probably would go with my fact that almost every ant they've ever seen is female but since I've already shared that one with you I'm going to go to my backup question my backup sort of ant fact and I'd share that Ants that have these gut microbes that they need, they have to have a mechanism for ensuring that their gut gets seeded with them whenever they, you know, sort of our new individuals are born. So how do they do that? They engage in something that's called trophallaxis, and so trophallaxis is just sharing liquid sources back and forth. So you can have oral, oral social trophallaxis, which is just social food sharing from you know one mouth to the other. But in the case of the ants that need these gut microbes, they have to do Oral anal trophallaxis, so they have to lick the rear end of another individual to acquire the right microbes.
0: See, now I lost reflex for ants, though. No, that's the problem. <laughs> so basically, ants go around licking each other's butts. Is what you're well, telling it's me. Just the vegetarian ones. Oh, okay. hey, <laughs> look. However, you got to survive is how you got to survive. Exactly. Um, anything else you think we missed, or anything else like that?
2: Um. I would say that I hope all of you have developed a greater appreciation of the little things that run the world, and you know maybe the next time you see an ant running around, take a moment to actually watch what it's doing, try to observe what it looks like because they're actually
0: remarkable animals. I want to thank Corey so much for joining us. If you want to connect with her, we have linked to her on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter and Instagram, and we have also included her information on the RSS feed that's on this podcast. Okay. Now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call. Hello? How do you feel about humidity?
1: I think I misunderstand humidity. I hope that makes sense.
0: Not really. How do you misunderstand humidity?
1: My entire life, I grew up with nosebleeds, and my parents would always tell me it was because of the humidity. I had nothing against them, but I ended up finding out later that I actually had like some kind of blood disorder that caused my nose to bleed. And it actually didn't have really anything to do with the humidity at all.
0: Wait, <laughs> were they trying to say that it was too much humidity or the lack of humidity that caused the nosebleed?
1: Uh, the lack of humidity.
0: I mean, I feel like so that, that could be a little bit more correct.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up thinking it was plausible. And I believe everyone in my, in my life uh, went with that. Um, so yeah, so I grew up most of my life having, uh, the wrong idea of what humidity actually is and does, so.
0: Did you grow out of the blood disorder? Do you still get a lot of nosebleeds?
1: I don't get a lot of nosebleeds anymore. I met my wife. She convinced me that it wasn't normal to have nosebleeds all the time, which it isn't, obviously. Went to the, to a specialist, got my nose cauterized, or cauterized, and now, um, I get one maybe every couple of months and it's just a trickle. It's not like, you know, uh, it's not like when I would be out at the bars and I would just turn my head and next thing I know my face, you know, was just covered in blood and it would scare the shit out of everybody.
0: Wow. What is it like? Happened. Wait, how do you get your nose cauterized?
1: Uh, so basically what they do is they take, they they basically just, they just burn the blood vessels at the, at the front of your nose.
0: Okay, I feel like you could have done that at home.
1: <laughs>
0: How much did that cost you?
1: Uh, you? You know, it's funny you say that. I, I'm actually uh, uh, working on the bill right now, and it, uh, with insurance, it, it's still about two grand. So.
0: Wow, you definitely could have done that at home, much cheaper.
1: I think overall, it was about eight thousand per nostril. Whoa! Oh and literally, God. all you're doing is, like I said, burning the blood vessels.
0: So you could have basically just stuck a lighter up your nose, <laughs> crank that sucker up for a couple of seconds, and then called it a day.
1: Uh, I, sure, I guess so. I don't know if, if, if medically, that's the correct thing to do, but who knows anymore what's the right thing to do medically, right? Who knows?
0: Well, I mean, doctors—they usually seem <laughs> to—they seem to know. But you could have gotten like a cauterizer and just seen what was going on. Did you have to go under anesthesia?
1: Uh no, they offered it, of course, but you know I'm a I'm a hard ass, so I, I said no, thank you.
0: Did you really turn it down?
1: I, I did, yeah. They they give local and they, they 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 numb the the nose a little bit, but they, they will you know they can full do full anesthesia if if you're wheezy because literally like your nose like smoke comes out of your nose because they're burning skin.
0: Oh, so you tried to give us the impression that you were a super tough guy and you went without nothing, but really they just gave you a local instead of putting you out all the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. So really you didn't do anything?
1: (laughs) I guess when you come back around to it, I I did get a little bit, yes.
0: Did they put the shot inside your nose or on the outside of your nose? Because inside seems like it would creep me out.
1: Yeah, inside. I mean, I didn't see it, so.
0: Okay. One shot each nostril or one shot from both nostrils? (laughs)
1: Uh, one shot, but they like put it in the middle, like on the bridge, I guess it'd be like where your the bridge of your nose is like, that's where they, that's where I felt the sensation.
0: Well, that's not inside your nose.
1: No, it it was, it was in the nostril, but it was like, that's where it was. That's where, like, that's where they put it. So it got both sides of your, of your
0: nose. Well, they had to start on one side. Did they start on the left side or to the right side? How did they attack the bridge from the left side or the right side? Simple (laughs) question.
1: I I guess I was confused by your question. They went up the right nostril.
0: Okay. All right.
1: It's always good to talk to you.
0: Okay. you afraid of insects?
1: Uh, To a certain degree, yes.
0: Are you afraid of the smaller ones or the bigger ones?
1: Uh, I am afraid of anything that is fast, if that makes any sense.
0: Mm, Okay.
1: Centipedes, spiders. I'm not afraid of beetles or crickets. I'm afraid of the shit that can... Move super fast.
0: I don't think a centipede moves that fast. I definitely wouldn't put that in the characteristics of fast insects. Oh,
1: You've obviously have never had house centipedes, then.
0: All right. All right. Is a centipede fast?
1: Oh my god!
0: Oh, the centipedes are fast. Okay, never mind. All right. I oh now I got to see a picture of them. I don't like. Oh yeah, centipedes. No, no. Hard pass, hard pass. Um, are you ready? What's your thing?
1: Uh, was that interview, are we, are we moving, we're moving through this one, huh?
0: Yeah, All dude. Right. T- we're just getting this like a nosebleed. We're just
1: <laughs> well, those would last me for hours. But anyways, we don't have that amount of time.
0: Did All they right, really uh, last that if, long? What you say? Did they really last that long?
1: Yes, and they would last throughout the day. So I would, I would, I would get it taken care of and then 2 hours later it would start bleeding all over again.
0: So did you what, what was your preferred strategy of dealing with them as a young man? Did you just stuff a bunch of Kleenex up there?
1: Yeah, usually.
0: Man, it must have been really hard for you to be cool in school. Um
1: there's a great story of me uh, of playing football and I would have tampons. And I would stick tampons up there to suck up the blood, you know, during two a day practices and things.
0: So no one was intimidated of the guy across the line with tampons in his nose.
1: I'm not even sure that most people know that story because I was kind of embarrassed by it except for like the people that were there and we still have a laugh about it. Like I'm not even as sure that my father knows that story because I didn't want him to know that I was sticking female hygienics up my nose.
0: Did you go with the, the tinted face shield so people couldn't see you?
1: No, no, nope. I, I, was, I was, like you just said, man, I was a full-blown lineman. I, I had the wide-open mask and everything. Wow. I mean, it only happened, like, maybe 10% of the time, which is actually quite a bit. Yeah,
0: it's actually quite a lot, if you think about it.
1: <laughs> All right, uh, let's give some shout-outs. Uh, thanks for checking us out on social media this week. Uh, we'll start with Brian, uh, Jake, Irene, Takai. Uh, Darius McClellan, appreciate you, you checking us out. Uh, Lauren Steven Connor, Gwen, and Sean. all of you get the gold stars uh this week.
0: Is Darius right, McClellan Nick. is Darius McClellan two people or one person?
1: Uh, he is one person Darius McClellan.
0: okay, all right, why'd you go with double name for him and only single name for everybody else
1: i I was just could, just trying to mix it up there in the middle, you know, add a little substance. Okay <laughs> Alright um, Since it's October uh, uh, Would you rather go into a, uh, a corn maze Or a haunted house
0: Is it like a fun corn maze Like our little kids there or Are we talking like a we're really trying to get you lost corn maze
1: Like really trying to get you lost
0: I'd rather sit in the parking lot Of both honestly <laughs> I mean I have no desire To go into haunted houses or corn mazes Or to be ca- scared in any way that just doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me
1: at all. <laughs> all right, so neither. You, uh, you're abstaining. That's fair.
0: I would go in a corn maze at the middle of the day. How about that?
1: <laughs> so what you're really admitting is you're just a gigantic scaredy cat.
0: Yeah, I hate scary stuff. I can't stand scary movies. I can't stand scary corn mazes, haunted houses, any of that stuff. That's a hard pass all around. I would go trick-or-treating at 3 o'clock in the afternoon if I could.
1: Well... There's going to be no trick-or-treating this year, so you don't have to worry about it.
0: What do you mean? You can put your candy on the table and watch the kids from the patio. <laughs>
1: that sounded a little creepy.
0: Yeah, um, it did. It did, actually. It sounded pretty creepy.
1: Would you rather, uh, Would you rather carve a pumpkin or color Easter eggs?
0: Oh, carve a pumpkin. Come on. I've colored many Easter eggs growing up in a Catholic family. It was never really very fun. Because it's impossible yeah. to color the... It's much harder to color the Easter egg than it is to carve the pumpkin, in my experience.
1: The pumpkin, at least you get something out of it. I mean, you get something that looks cool, and you can eat the seeds.
0: You can eat the eggs.
1: Yeah, I don't like vinegar and all that jazz, so I'm going to pass on that.
0: What do you mean, vinegar?
1: The Growing up, right, you mix the... To stain the eggs, you put the, the, the color packet in vinegar, and that's what you put the egg in, right?
0: No. I don't know what you were doing.
1: <laughs> Listen, these are all things that I grew up with. I can't tell you why they happened.
0: So yeah, that's, they, that'd be inc- that's an incorrect way to color your eggs right there. That's what that is.
1: I guess so. Um, and the last one, I, I guess I, n- I now know the answer to this, so this is kind of a foolish question, but gonna, I didn't write anything else down. Uh, an <laughs> Ouija board, are yes or no?
0: What?
1: A- an Ouija board? You know, the kind that you... Ask a question and the spirits are supposed to move you.
0: Wait a minute, what is it called?
1: <laughs> An Ouija?
0: <laughs> no, dude. <laughs> it's not Ouija. It's Ouija. Why do Weezy. you think it's Ouija? Fuck.
1: You know, I wrote it down and I, I, I even meant to like go back and look at how to say it, and I was I'm like, I got it, it's fine.
0: Ouija? <laughs> How do you not know that? How do you not know that by simple process of like being alive for as long as you've been alive and just hearing the word Ouija board over and over again? Did you not know that a Ouija, did you think like, oh, I don't know what a Ouija board is. What's this Ouija board?
1: I, you know, I was looking at it on my paper and I'm like, I I forget how to say this. I'm going to just see how it looks and go with it.
0: Okay. Ouija. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh oh well, that board
0: that's uh well wrong is what that it, would be?
1: It sure is well, we know that your answer is no, so that's that's good.
0: Well yeah, dude, who wants to do that and who actually believes that that's that's well there's probably a lot of people who believe that that's that's a real thing, but whatever, that man,
1: people on this show that would tell you it's probably the pathway.
0: look look one one thing if you're thinking about any of that kind of belief system. If you really think about it, one thing's not any crazier than the other. Some people believe this, some people believe that. It's really not any crazier. What's the, what's the difference between a spell and a prayer? I couldn't really tell you.
1: Listen, and dinosaurs were real, okay? Yeah, dude, they were.
0: Ask your Ouija board what's going on.
1: Right. <laughs> All right. Can, we, can you introduce the top five, which is one of the hardest I think we've ever done?
0: Uh, mine was pretty easy, although I just realized that I forgot a couple of numbers on them. Uh, so our top five is top five insects. What's your number five? Uh,
1: I have mosquitoes.
0: Why? You like mosquitoes?
1: So I went with the, with insects that are, are, like, known. Like, you know, I I didn't go with uh, things that aren't in, like, my everyday life. And to me, mosquitoes, though, they carry disease and have been, you know, uh, host to some of the worst things in history, uh, deserve a list, deserve a spot on a top five list in terms of mosquito, or uh, insects. So I put them as my number five.
0: Okay. That's, uh... like if, if
1: you're talking insects of all time, there's no way you leave off the mosquito.
0: All right, that does make a little bit of sense, right? Like, if you're going top five overall, like, in terms of influence and just notoriety, yeah. But I'm just, you know, I guess I went another direction because my number five is a caterpillar.
1: Huh, okay. Uh, what? The What's the reasoning behind that?
0: Do you ever seen a caterpillar? Fucking sweet. I have. All right, then. Yeah, dude, it's like a fuzzy little thing that moves around. Nobody sees a caterpillar and gets scared about it. It's like, oh, there's a caterpillar. I'm going to watch that thing move.
1: Interesting, okay. I mean, even the fact that like it morphs into another creature, does that do anything?
0: No. I mean, it's just okay. cool. I like a caterpillar.
1: <laughs> all right. Um, my number four, that was a weird uh, transition. You
0: had uh, mosquito I... on there. Like, everybody just has a pet mosquito all day.
1: Well, I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm going except for one insect all my top five. Everything is about like influence and, and you know, just like the insect hall of fame in my eyes, so to speak, except for one.
0: Okay. All right. What's your number four?
1: Uh, so my number four is the flea.
0: Dude. First of all, I don't even under, like, I forgot about a flea entirely. Is a flea even an insect? I feel like it's something else. It's an insect.
1: It's it's considered an insect. And it's, I mean, fleas are everywhere. They're on your animals. They're in the dust. They're in your mattress.
0: Dude, I don't want to think about that. They've been around forever. I don't want to think. Is a flea in your mattress? What are you doing? What kind of mattresses are you buying?
1: Well, I mean, (laughs) first off, I, I feel the need to tell this that, you know, my first mattress in Orlando was when I got from your old roommate. If you remember that. Oh
0: yeah, it probably did have a lot of fleas. <laughs> yeah. Um, did it like, actually you have of, fleas? You ever heard of bed bugs? Yeah, dude. I, mean, I don't. I that, don't think of that as a flea though. Is that a member of the flea family? Yeah,
1: that's a member of the flea family.
0: Oh. Okay.
1: Mites, fleas—they're all—they're all part of like the same big family.
0: Okay. All right. Um, that's it.
1: What's your number four? Ants. Okay. I have I have ants, but they're a little higher on my list.
0: That's understandable. What's your number three?
1: Uh, so this is the only one that isn't, like, for influence. I just think it has a badass name,
0: and it's the dung beetle. <laughs> I was going to put the dung beetle on there, too. I mean, it's pretty cool, right? Like, it just push, pushes poop around all the time. That's not a terrible job. Well, it is a <laughs> terrible job, actually, but... I mean, he, humans do it and, you know, they get paid for it. This is just a beetle that's just pushing poop around just because that's the only thing it knows how to do. I can even imagine like the nature documentary where they show it like on its hind legs, pushing it with its hind legs, walking backwards. Because that's how you do it when you're a dung beetle.
1: You know a lot more about the dung beetle than I think I know about the dung beetle.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty much just those three sentences that I put out there right then. It's basically number my, three? Butterfly.
1: Okay, that's, I mean, that's all my honorable mention. I mean, they probably are one of the coolest looking insects.
0: You could make a strong argument that the butterfly should be higher on the top five insects list.
1: Yes and no. I mean, really all they are is just like a prettier moth.
0: Right. Wait, I mean, if a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, what turns into a moth? I don't
1: know what the name is. I think it's just a, some kind of larvae.
0: Right. But,
1: but... But, like, I don't think there's a specific name for it. I, I don't know. I'm sure there is, but I don't know what
0: it is. Well, but everybody knows that, like, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. How come nobody knows what becomes a moth?
1: Because moth, moths are like the red-headed stepchild of the insect family.
0: Moths, moths do kind of suck.
1: They eat your clothes. They're ugly. Like... When's the last time you've been like, oh, that moth, is, that, that, that looks like a cool moth.
0: Never. I've always Never. been like, yeah. Like, ooh, look at that moth. Hey, Logan, my four-year-old, look at that moth. Never. <laughs> I've always been like, get that moth out of here. Oh, that would <laughs> suck to be a moth. really would be. Butterfly taking all the attention.
1: Even... You think there's like a insect battle, like between the moth and uh, uh, butterfly?
0: No, because butterfly just dominates it. <laughs> There should be, like, an animated movie about how moths are trying to take back, you know, almost like the Lion King, where they had Mufasa and he was, like, sweet, and then they had Scar and his life sucked. That's kind of like the <laughs> equivalent of the butterfly moth right there. Uh, what's, yeah. What number are we on? Uh, two, and
1: my my number two is the ant, so.
0: Okay, all right. But any specific kind of ant that you favor above any
1: of the others? I mean, I've always been a, uh, a fan of the fire ant.
2: Huh.
1: <laughs> Uh, you know, they're, they're badass, for one, and they can sting like a mother. There's some other ant that I've seen countless documentaries on that I don't remember the name of, but they're the ones that, like, can carry, like, a thousand times their weight on their back or something.
0: That's either Siafu or the Bullet Ant. Those are the ones that I always hear about. The Siafu Jesus. ant is the one that, like, moves in packs and just takes over stuff, and the Bullet Ant is the one where it's, like, the most painful sting in the world. And for
1: those who didn't know, uh, Nick's next career is going to be an insectologist.
0: First of all, it's called an entomologist, by the way.
1: Yeah, same same thing. I knew you would know that.
0: Well, that's our guest this week is an entomologist. (laughs) Thanks for listening and paying attention. What's
1: What's your your number two?
0: Ladybug.
1: Oh my god!
0: You got a problem with a ladybug? Say something foolish. (laughs) Say something foolish about a ladybug.
1: It's not problem with the ladybug it's just do you remember 10 years ago or so or something it came out that there's a bug that looks just like the ladybug but it's not a ladybug what is it it's it's some kind of beetle that looks just like the ladybug but it's not a ladybug
0: okay i mean is it doing anything or is it just walking around looking like a ladybug and also making people generally happy
1: first off i think you're overestimating ladybugs and i mean when's the last time you've seen a ladybug
0: well like a week ago it's crawling no, on my no. finger and i passed it over to my son it's a there's no, no. it a heartwarming moment so what's the wait a minute so what's your big problem with the imposter ladybug what were they doing that was so bad or you just didn't like the fact that they looked like a ladybug well you just
1: don't, you you don't know right like
0: but what's the difference like, oh, so hey, what's a
1: ladybug aka no it's just a beetle that's just gonna eat all the damn leaves all the time well, that's and what ruin a, my garden.
0: Well, that's what a ladybug is doing. What's the difference? I don't understand why you're so upset about the imposter ladybug. It's not doing I'm not anything really that, to I'm,
1: you. Not really that upset about the ladybug or, or the imposter.
0: Okay. I mean, I don't. You seem to be making an issue out of it. Like, oh, I don't like them because of the imposter, but you didn't give a reason why, other than they look like a ladybug as well. I just—it's hard
1: to differentiate. The beetle, the imposter ladybug beetle, and the actual ladybug beetle.
0: Oh, but so what?
1: I just, I just don't like it. I mean, that's that's my reasoning. I just, I'm the, you know, ladybug's not on my honorable mention either. She gets left off.
0: I just want to know the circumstance where you would be like, oh, ladybug, awesome. No, wait, it's this imposter I- one. Everybody go home. Nobody care.
1: It's way too high to be... You shouldn't even have it on your list.
0: Oh, Ladybug's fantastic. They made a whole movie about them. What's your number one? Bee. What, any specific kind of bee? Or just a general bee? Just a general bee. I'm gonna go Bumblebee.
1: No, they're like what I would be if I was a bee. Like, just the big, stupid ones.
0: They are kind of the bigger, stupid ones, right? Like, you can see them. Some of them are huge.
1: I mean, I guess I'd have to go honeybee. I don't know. They serve a a pretty delicate purpose.
0: I always thought the honeybee and the bumblebee were actually the same kind of bee. But
1: you were wrong.
0: Am I? I think so. Well, let's not look it up and just move on to honorable mention.
1: Well, what's your number one?
0: Oh, the bumblebee, man. I said it.
1: Oh, I didn't hear you say that that was my number one. Okay.
0: Yeah, easy.
1: Let's see. My, uh... My honorable mention, I got a lot, so I hope you're ready. Okay. Um, The cockroach, the walking stick, the assassin bug, Hercules beetle, the praying mantis, wasps, centipedes, flies, crickets, grasshoppers, so uh, all, flyer the, flies, so all the insects. flies, and uh, that's it.
0: All the insects, basically, is your honorable mention.
1: There's so many insects, are you kidding me? And there's so many, like, influential.
0: I mean, I'm a fan of the praying mantis. I like the praying mantis. It's got a cool name. I could care less about crickets. I could care less about grasshoppers. Um, the Hercules beetle is pretty... Beetles are kind of cool. Right? Like, they don't bother me. I'm okay with spiders if they're outside. If they're inside my house, they're a dead man.
1: Yeah, if you notice, I just left them off completely because ain't no, no one likes a spider. I don't care what you say.
0: Not really. How do you feel about somebody that has a pet spider? They're not my friend. Oh, okay. That's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. If you leave a review, screenshot it, and send it to us, we'll definitely send you a sticker, and we'll enter you into a contest to win a t-shirt. Because that's where we're at with this podcast right now, right? We're kind of the new kids in school. We're all right. But we got to bribe people. Like we need to get the high school of equivalent of a fake ID in a pool so that people will like us a little more. So that's what we're trying to do, right? I'm not above that. You've been listening to this podcast for a while. You know, John and I have no moral morals, really. Yeah, none. No, that's not true. We're just shady. Shady is the word that I would use.
2: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends.